From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, welcome to EWTN's Open Line Friday. Colin Donovan is in the house, ready to take your questions. Grab one of these open phone lines. They will be full later. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Friday, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you, too. So as we roll through the octave of Easter, uh, day after tomorrow will be the Feast of Divine Mercy, as instituted by our uh, late Holy Father, St. John Paul II. And um, there's sometimes a little bit of... Uh, murkiness about uh, what's going on with Sister Faustina uh, when we compare the uh, indulgence that can be gained through activities revolving around Divine Mercy Sunday and the promises that she says our Lord made to her for those who would keep the devotion. Sure, and maybe uh, just a quick praise of, of this whole, the whole area of the private revelations to Sister Faustina. Uh, a nun, first in Vilnius in Lithuania and then in Krakow, Poland, received these uh, revelations in which Christ wanted to open up the fountains of his divine mercy and uh, to the world uh, to, because he said, if they will not pass through my mercy, they will, pa- they will uh, experience my justice. And so he wants to pour out mercy upon the earth. And so he, uh, he said many things to her, but among them that... Uh, concretely was the establishment of a Feast of Divine Mercy, uh, the, a novena of mercy for uh, different categories of sinners and souls in general. Uh, and one particular feature of it was a promise that on this uh, Feast of Mercy, which he asked for to be the Sunder, Sunday after Easter Sunday, uh, he asked that if Peter, he said that if people uh, came and uh, uh, to the church and honored the divine mercy on that Sunday, they could obtain the complete forgiveness of their sins by going to confession and receiving Holy Communion on the Feast of Divine Mercy. So this was a promise within the context of these revelations to Sister Faustina, who uh, during the the course of uh, first initially before the pontificate of John Paul II began, the, the cause began, uh, and then in earnest, certainly was propelled forward by 
the archbishop of the place where she died in Poland, in Krakow, uh, becoming the pope. And so it proceeded by investigation, and she ended up being canonized by Pope John Paul II. And in the process of canonization, the, the uh, heroic virtues of an individual are declared, which means that their credibility is assured by what they say and what they asserted. And, of course, in their canonization, the, the pope not only says you may honor Faustina, but actually the language that is used is a language of, of you must honor, universal uh, veneration of uh, Sister Faustina. So this raises what she has in her revelations to high credibility. It's not of the faith. The, the faith is the things from Christ through the apostles, the church that are taught. But it gives to the promise that in the, the request for the Feast of the Divine Mercy and these other things, the credibility of the church standing behind and saying there is nothing contrary to faith in this. They are credible. The person is credible and so on. What John Paul II did is he instituted things by apostolic authority, which is another matter. We are obliged as Catholics to believe in the apostolic authority of the Pope and his ability to bind and loose, uh, his ability to bind in heaven, uh, to bind on earth and thereby in heaven. And so by instituting the feast in the church, putting it on the calendar, it became, a, you would say, an institutional fact of Catholicism. And by creating an indulgence with conditions virtually identical to uh, those that were attached to the promise anyway, confession and communion, he gave Catholics the certainty not of human credibility in the promise made to Sister Faustina, but of the authority of the Church in the divine mercy indulgence. So there is no contradiction but to believing in the promise on human credibility, obviously, and divine faith in the authority of the Church to establish the feast and the indulgence, and to do so as a Catholic, uh, by one's Catholic faith. So that's, that's the difference. Effectively, the promise of, of made to Faustina is the equivalent to what the Church knows as a plenary indulgence, the full remission of the sin and the penalty due to it for confession and communion and a particular work, in this case, the work is to honor the divine mercy, whether you're able to do it in the church, whether you're able to join uh, in prayer for the sick and those who are otherwise impeded, or, or and so on. Uh, it's in that doing that work of honoring the divine mercy on the feast of divine mercy, uh, to which the indulgence is attached. Uh, and so, in a way, the the promise made to Faustina becomes an institutional part of the Catholic faith through the authority of the successor of Peter establishing, the, establishing this divine mercy indulgence. So it's a beautiful fulfillment of what was started in the 1930s, first in Lithuania and then continued in Krakow with Sister uh, Faustina. And of course all of the normal requirements for a plenary indulgence are in place for uh, Divine Mercy Sunday and the sticky point there is always mm -hmm. being detached from all sin, even venial. So what's your uh, theological take on that requirement? Well, I mean, there's that, that requirement, certainly. Uh, and that is hard to do. And this is why you would say that, you know, experientially, we are not going to be able to judge whether we've gained the plenary indulgence. 
But I think what the private revelation and the words that Christ used, which we may humanly believe, certainly, gives to us a confidence that on this day he is open to, to giving us the graces even to satisfy that condition. And so we go into it with an open heart, as is the case in everything divine. We go into it with an open heart that the Lord uh, is, um, uh, is ready to uh, supply. Now, there have been over the years different questions related to, well, on the Feast of Mercy Sunday. Well, clearly not everybody can go to confession and necessarily even go to communion on that day. Well, it's been interpreted by the church, by the Archbishop of Krakow, uh, uh, several decades ago, uh, even this was after John Paul II even, that simply going before and after, as Catholics normally do to get an indulgence, you go up to eight days before and eight days after to go to confession and to communion on the day if possible, but on another day if not possible, if obstructed. That that would certainly apply here. And I would note since the Jubilee year and the Jubilee year uh, and this particular honor given to Faustina and the divine mercy in that year by Pope John Paul II, the apostolic uh, penitentiary expanded the eight days traditional for indulgences to 20 and I have a document from Rome that I simply asked them the question at one point. Did that 20 days of lenience to go to confession before or after doing the work and so on expire with the Jubilee year expiring? And that answer is no. And it's not been, uh, it's not been taken away. So we have 20 days before and after to fulfill uh, the confessional element. And that's why... Uh, and that's why going sometime during Lent typically will satisfy that. The important thing is you have to be in the state of grace when you do the work on the Feast of Mercy. So that at least says maybe going after the fact might not be a good idea. Go before Easter Sunday and also fulfill your Sunday duty to annually receive uh, um, you know, Holy Communion on Easter Sunday or during, during the, Easter the Easter season. season. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Through redemptive Catholic journalism, EWTN News helps advance the gospel and teachings of the church. Get our trusted Catholic news right in your email inbox. Simply visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up today is Michael in Louisville, Kentucky, listening on Holy Family Radio. 
Michael, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hello there. Would you uh, please speak about how uh, if you sow violence, you reap violence, and, and the mass murder of abortion is similar to the mass murder of gun violence, and contraception is the root of abortion. Would you please speak about that, please? Thank you. Sure. Uh, there, there's, some, there's a logical connection there, uh, I would think. Uh, the, 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 in uh, one of the things that I guess it depends on whether you like Humane Vitae or you don't, that I think Paul VI was most prophetic about, uh, other than simply teaching the truth about marital relations, which is prophecy enough. Prophecy is simply speaking the truth, whether to power or to simply those who need to hear it. Uh, is that he predicted the the results of what we see in in many senses, because great sins start with little sins. Nobody wakes up or is is born and comes into the world a mass murderer. Uh, they find out now with uh, child abuse and a lot of things, kids start out by torturing animals and things like that. The small things begin and lead to to greater things. So. The unwillingness to have children, despite being married, despite having the, you might say, the, the, the joys of marriage, the unwillingness to do the work of marriage, for which marriage is the only institution uh, created to do that, to perpetuate the human species, uh, that unwillingness represents reducing children to a commodity, for example a commodity to be treated uh, with by according to convenience. Uh, the child, the child is in the way to something else that I want to be, have fulfilled in my life. I want this. The child is not part of what I want. Get rid of it. So it's a callousness to life that begins there uh, in, in, the, in the womb. There are other calluses to life. I think uh, certainly our culture here in the West, you go back to the Wild West and you, you look at that and the gun violence and so on. There is a certain culture of violence uh, created by how our country came into existence as well as um, you know the, 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 the quick tendency to use uh, force. Uh, I don't think that this is necessarily uh, have any particular you know, direct claim, but uh, effect on mass murders today. But it does show that among human beings as individuals and as societies, smaller things lead to greater things, a callousness towards violence of any kind. We might talk empirically about the connection that has been found between violent video games and other behaviors, uh, and the readiness to actually use violence against uh, real human beings as opposed to virtual human beings. So all of these things are accumulative. Uh, so I think, yes, with respect to uh, uh, the sin of abortion and the callousness to life, it alone, the, tr uh, the, the nation has not legalized mass murder per se, you're not allowed to go shoot out, go shoot up your political enemies or your ideological enemies. That's not legal. And until recently, however, it was legal to kill your own children and for doctors to assist in that. And in some places, it's also legal to have yourself killed at the end of life. This comes from 
the developing callousness to human life and treatment as a commodity, uh, as something not only as a commodity in some cases, but co completely autonomous to me. In other words, for those who are secularly minded or atheistic minded, uh, they may have very good moral values in many respects, but they also have an extreme sense of uh, individualism and personal autonomy, not to be constrained by any god, for example. Uh, so all of these things work together without any particular one thing you can point to. That's the cause, but you can point to several things like that to say that's the cause of the growing callousness to, to life, uh, whether it's you know, in the womb or outside of the womb. So I think that's, that's the main connection, but clearly, as Paul VI predicted, this separation of the purposes of marriage has created uh, uh, not just the small society of the family, by many cases reducing it to two and no more, but also has created the larger family of the state with such a mentality as well, uh, such that you could have legal abortion in our country from 73 until, uh, what, last summer, and you can... Um, you know, have the other ongoing violence that is there. All of those are related in our inner cities. And not unconnectedly, however, in this respect, is the fact that granting that Planned Parenthood and abortionists target minorities. You go back to Margaret Sanger and her eugenicist ideas, you get rid of the poor and the undesirables. I, I think that's what's behind it personally. But it's also in these communities where there's ready access or where uh, our culture has made abortion readily accessible and promoted it there, that there you find a lot of violence as well. Life is common. Life is cheap. Does that help, Michael? Yes, thank you. <clears throat> You're very welcome. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Ronald in the great state of Pennsylvania, listening at EWTN.com. Ronald, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. Hey, Ronald. I think you're my old friend from, uh, called over many decades now, from Philadelphia yeah, area. <laughs> a brother. You and your brother, that's right. What's your question today, Ronald? I've got a question about the Apostle Creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Jesus suffered, died, and was buried, and he descended to the dead, or he descended into hell. It means hell in the German translation. It doesn't mean a hell where devils are at. It means something else. But how, how did that come about? Was that prophesied in the Old Covenant? Yeah, there was. I think it's in, uh, one. I forget which word it is, one of the Psalms or one of the prophets, that he will go down into the, to the places of the dead. And, of course, for the, dead, for the Israelites, that was Sheol. It was the place of the dead. For the Greeks, it was Hades. Uh, the Latin word is infernum, the, the lower regions or the lower places. Uh, and so uh, our translation of hell is a, sort of a direct descendant of the Latin texts of the, of the Apostles' Creed. 
that Christ descended into these regions which these ancient civilizations just saw the place of the dead or the lower regions into the inferior world, uh, the infernum. And so it describes all of those. It describes purgatory. It describes the hell of the damned. And it then also describes the bosom of Abraham where the just waited for the Messiah because they couldn't go to heaven until the Messiah came. So all of that was encompassed on, under the old, the ancient world's idea of where the dead went. They believed in a place of punishment, of justice, uh, Gehenna. Uh, there the, the term was taken from the, the valley where the garbage was, was burned uh, in Jerusalem. If they believed in the bosom of Abraham where the just went, then all of that was in these lower regions. And this is where Christ went. But he went to the just of the old law who were awaiting him. And there he would have found Adam and Eve and David and the, and the just patriarchs and the prophets. And he would have found uh, his foster father Joseph and his cousin and precursor John the Baptist. And he would have, have obviously then announced the completion of his, uh, the, his incarnate and redemptive mission. So that is where the creed is saying he goes. Now, in the British, uh, having grown up as a Canadian, we always used to say descended to the dead. Uh, I guess uh, a little bit of fear, a feared of that uh, use of the word hell. It's always been hell in, a, in, the, uh, in the American English, uh, but the place is the same. It's the place of the dead uh, in, in either case. Psalm 110, for those of you scoring at home. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Pat is in Detroit, Michigan today, and he is listening on Ave Maria Radio. Pat, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, good afternoon, and happy Easter. Happy Easter to you, too. I have. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, my question is not so much legalistic as is, as much as it is um, trying to gain a theological understanding. Is when Saturday afternoon mass is considered, you know, the Sunday duty or um, mass. Mm-hmm. It's you know, so it fulfills our Sunday obligation. How can a Sunday evening mass fulfill the Sunday duty as well? Okay, or doesn't it? It does. Um, also, uh, a late Saturday afternoon or evening funeral or marriage would. Is it's not the liturgy of the day, it's the satisfying the, uh, the, the mass obligation. So look at it historically. Uh, one thing we know is, of course, that in the early church they began to uh, celebrate the day of the recreation, the day of the resurrection, as opposed to the Jewish practice of the Sabbath being the day uh, in which God rested and the, and the people rested. So Sunday, Sunday can be variously described. It can be described as beginning uh, with sundown as the Jews did. Every day began with sundown. And so the following day, uh, uh, Monday would begin with sundown also uh, in, in that scheduling, in that way of looking at it. And so you know, that, that would be one way of considering Sunday have begun on Saturday night. The obligation falls, of course, from the authority of the church to make application of the third commandment to keep holy the Sabbath. 
and that is that Catholics participate in the Mass, not necessarily receive communion, but participate in the Mass on, on Sunday, the day of the resurrection. Then it becomes a canonical question as to how all of that's defined. And believe me, in canon law classes, there are these arguments about canonical time and solar time and, and common time and all those things. But the church herself extended it, including uh, Saturday evening, for the sake of people being able to get to Mass. Uh, s- Sunday is a natural, it's still Sunday. Sunday evening is naturally Sunday. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Two of our EWTN radio partners need to hear from you next week. Holy Family Radio in Ohio is conducting their Spring Spirit Drive starting next Wednesday, and Ave Maria Radio in Michigan will be conducting their Spring Pledge Drive all next week, no matter where you're listening. Please support your Catholic radio station. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Paul is a first-time caller in Austin, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Paul, you are on with Colin Donovan. Mr. Donovan, it's a pleasure to uh, to speak with you. I I was married at 18 and became a reticent, married outside the church, became mm-hmm. a reticent Catholic for 47 years, and came back to the church, and my wife decided she wanted to join the church. Catholic Church within, and she was taking her lessons, and and I was very proud. She kind of like talk about heaven, she talked about purgatory, talk about hell, and I said, well, what about limbo? And she said, she said, limbo? There is no limbo. I said, wait a minute. I said, when I left the church 47 years ago, there was limbo. <laughs> what happened to limbo, and what happened to all those babies that we were told all those years that were in limbo? Okay. Uh well, limbo was a theological solution to a problem. We know who is in heaven. The baptized who persevere in their baptismal grace or recover it through sacraments of penance or perfect contrition outside of the sacrament and die in that state. Those, those are in heaven. We'll skip this discussion of purgatory because some of those people must pass through purgatory to get there because of the deficiencies in their perfection, if you will. Limbo was a situation, what about those who are not baptized? They're not, they haven't committed personal mortal sin, so they don't deserve hell, but yet they are not baptized, so they can't, you know, they don't know that they're going to heaven. So the big issue is the church had a problem for which she had no ready solution. What happens to the unbaptized? And so various stratagems or explanations have been argued, uh, whether as unbaptized children or unbaptized adults, uh, different uh, solutions are proposed for that. And so for unbaptized children, there was this thought of the scholastics in the, the medieval period, like Aquinas and others, that, well, they're not deserving of hell. They can't they're not deserving of heaven. They've not been baptized, the one thing we know that will get you to heaven. But So where do they go? A place of natural happiness. 
And that's what limbo was, a place of natural happiness for the unbaptized who had not committed mortal sin. Now, for the unbaptized who were past the age of reason, unbaptized children, I would say, uh, both the, the unbaptized babies as well as children before the age of reason. For unbaptized adults, it's been the general assumption that like the angels who on their creation made a, a moral act for or against God, that even a young person can make a choice early on to do something they know to be, at least in their universe of things to do, gravely wrong and choose evil over good. So we can't rule out, we can't just say, oh, children are just happy-go-lucky and they can't commit moral sin. No, they clearly can commit moral sin. In fact, our age is demonstrating it, that children can do horrible, awful things, which pretty much verifies what has been thought for centuries would be the case, that we make a choice when we have the moral and the, the judgment to make a moral choice, we make it and it'll be towards the good or, or away from it. And all of our choices ultimately are towards the, the, the good, the true good of ourselves and others or away from it. Even if we don't know God, that's uh, the case. So there's a basis for dividing people there, but not necessarily getting them justice if they're not baptized. So we'll, we'll set that aside. So limbo didn't go away, but the theory is now changing a little bit. Uh, the International Theological Commission proposed uh, a few years ago uh, on studying the issue. I, th I believe uh, Benedict was the pope at the time. It may have been even earlier. That those uh, the unbaptized of the baptized, the children of the baptized who aren't born, because the parents would have baptized them, that, that they could receive uh, again, you know, the parents have the authority to baptize infants. They would have exercised that authority to this group of children who died before being born. Therefore, these children would be saved. But that, again, is a theological opinion. It's not been confirmed by the church. So we're basically still in uncharted territory, although I think for most people that idea that the intentions of the parents have some play in it, especially for uh, the baptized uh, you know, for the children of parents who are baptized, whether Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant, simply baptized and would have baptized their children. That, that is a very hopeful solution there. Um, but it doesn't necessarily, is not the only solution. God could have willed and may be willing their salvation anyway. We don't know that. The church is here to teach what we know, what's been revealed, and what we may reasonably deduce from what has been revealed. And there is a sad lack of information on this, although there is great hope, obviously, uh, that mercy is extended to all of them. And John Paul II put it that way, that we entrust all the, such children to the mercy of God. Uh, Luanus is watching us on YouTube and says, how do we know that Adam and Eve went to the limbo of the fathers and not to Gehenna? Are they considered to be saints? The Eastern Church and the Western Church both consider Adam and Eve to have repented and have been saved. And so um, there is, of course, the tradition that Calvary is built over the burial place and that the blood of the cross ran down through a crack in the earth. And when you go to Jerusalem and to the Holy Sepulcher, 
you will see there is the chapel of Adam is below where the crucifix was. So there is a long, a long belief in the church, east and west, that Adam and Eve are among the saved. And if you look, if you look in the Roman martyrology, uh, which people don't commonly see because it's got you know thousands and thousands of saints, we're familiar with the ones on the liturgical calendar. There you will find Adam and Eve. You will find David. You will find Elijah and the various prophets. You will find uh, other individuals from the old law that. Uh, that are, pr- are presumed by the church, and in this particular case, I think the church, uh, the church's presumption, is taken as a matter of the faith. The fact that they're in the martyrology suggests that we are fully justified, and therefore, you know, the church has been led to make these conclusions with the help of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, uh, they can be believed. Pamela is in Piedmont, South Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Pamela, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. I just wanted to comment on the Divine Mercy conversation that you had. Mm -hmm. I've had conversations with a couple other um, EWTN priests as well, Um, and like Father John Wade was one, who's on this program, Um, and this was probably three years ago, and he's come to see that there is more than just the plenary indulgence that's offered, because um, Jesus promised on that day of mercy, the soul that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion shall obtain complete forgiveness of sins and punishment, Diary 699. Mm-hmm. And so when I visited with Father Wade about this, he told me to get a hold of the Marian, the Association of Marian Helpers, who said um, the answer is there are two graces offered on Divine Mercy Sunday. One is extraordinary promise, which you are accustomed to, which your priest educated you on, um, and the other one is the plenary indulgence. Um, so there is two, and Father Chris Alar does preach on that as well. He teaches. So mm-hmm. it's just but with did, that coming up, it's sure. so important. But did you listen to my presentation? Because what I oh, said... Oh, I heard most of it. Well, you missed the part. There is the promise, which has the weight of the credibility of the Church behind it, but remains private revelation, and therefore with that, with that, has credibility, humanly speaking, then there is indulgence. They stand side by side. They have the authority of reason, which you may put your faith in, and I do, and one which has the authority of Christ through the church. And so you have two different things. Those who may not believe in the the private revelation as being credible may still believe in the indulgence. Those who are firmly convinced, as both you and I do and many, many other Catholics, that the promise is exactly as Christ gave it, but knowing that the authority is not the authority of the Church or even of certain divine revelation. is not of divine revelation at all. It's of private revelation. Nonetheless, putting human faith in that can accept that. But we must make that distinction because the Church makes that distinction for our good. Otherwise, you get the silliness in other cases, and that is that every jot and tittle of what is written in a private revelation of a saint is to be understood exactly and verbatim, and the Church doesn't take it that way. The conclusions here are different because the Church has thoroughly looked at this particular one, understood it, and I think, as I just said, reasonably one accepts the promise as given in the private revelation. One is not obliged to. 
You could argue, and I do, that a Catholic is obliged to believe that they can get an indulgence on Mercy Sunday by doing the things the Church says, because the authority is the papal authority exercised who can bind in heaven as he binds on earth in these kinds of matters. So it's two paths, but side by side. For those who don't believe that, well, yeah, maybe our Lord appeared to Faustina, but I'm ready to seek the indulgence, great, they should. Um, But you're entitled to believe in the other because, but you do it on human credibility, and I think that's that's a distinction. And it's an important distinction because it covers so many other areas that people get all wrapped up in knots over, and I think the, that's the reason for being clear about the lines of credibility here. Human and divine. God bless you, Pamela. We appreciate that phone call a lot. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Terry is in the great state of Michigan listening on Ave Maria Radio. Terry, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Jack. Hi, Colin. Um, I told the screener, and I refined my question. In an election, when you have uh, candidates who are pro-life and pro-choice on the ballot, would it be ever acceptable to vote for the pro-abortion uh, candidate? Uh, because I heard if you're not voting for said candidate because of his or her abortion stat, but in spite of it, that it would be acceptable. And that just doesn't seem, that seems wiggle room that might not be aligned with mm-hmm. our Catholic faith. Okay. Yeah. The, the, this is a complex area of moral theology, so it's probably good you have a moral theologian uh, explaining it to you. What you do in that case, and this was explained also in a letter of, uh, of then Cardinal Ratzinger to the U.S. bishops in 2004, but it was boilerplate moral theology. And that is, when you vote for, look at the number of things that we vote on when we vote for candidate A versus B. We vote basically for a program and a platform made up of many elements. So you have this grab bag of of, uh, group A over here, and you have this grab bag of group B over here. And it's still possible to give a hierarchy to the elements in those, you know, know, whether you're increasing the minimum wage by $2 or whether you're in favor of abortion are in categorically different categories. You can put, put what candidates stand for in a hierarchy and do so. But the basic position that when you vote for somebody who has these other worthwhile things to do, but maybe they also are pro-choice, you can, for a proportionate reason, and that is the thing, quotes, capitals, bolded, underlined, asterisks, and you can put it in brackets, do anything you want there. There has to be a proportionate reason. I think the argument of many pro-life people, and and certainly has been mine, is that it will be very difficult. It would have been difficult 30 years ago today. It's almost impossible today to find proportionate reasons for voting for a candidate who would take, allow, and fund the the taking of the life of the unborn. That's where the proportionality gets weak today. So as a theoretical argument, especially of the past, it was more and more, you know, it was quite clear. 
abortion was off most people's radar uh, for decades. It was not that you were worried about war and peace and economy and other things like that. You know, so the, the old argument was made, well, I'm not voting for a warmonger because more people will be killed in a nuclear war than they would be killed in abortion. Well, if somebody's uh, about to, for, to do a nuclear war, then, you know, maybe if that were imminent, abortion's pretty imminent in those days it was. So the, the, the case was pretty strong there. Uh, and then it went away with the decision of the Supreme Court in many cases, but not in all places. I think it's going to come back because now it is being uh, used as a weapon against the church in many places. So I think you get back to what I argue is a comparison of the whole program of an individual. And you look at the three most important areas, life and the dignity of life. And within that, there's a hierarchy. You have to have a life to have dignity, which then require has obligations of other people, the state, and so on. So you have to have a life to receive those other things, health care, to migrate into the country, to be treated justly, to receive fair wages, all these you know, life issues, which even John Paul II would have uh, called in Evangel Evangelium Vitae, a lot of things related to the dignity of man would be a life issue. But without life, they're no longer an issue. So that's sort of a, a silly argument to weigh a basket of all of those things versus the taking of human life. But people do it, and they argue that that's proportionate. It isn't. The other one is marriage and family. This has become the new cause celeb today in our times. Well, if you're not, if you're not favoring marriage and family, except as otherwise defined according to your whims, and marriage and family becomes uh, more of a political slogan and category than it is a natural category of having children and providing the next generation of citizens and so on, uh, people of dignity who should have their lives, in other words, then you have to wonder, is all these other things you're in favor of really have anything to do with marriage, which means man and woman, and family, which means a man and woman having children? And it doesn't. And so you get, where's the proportionality? And then there's the freedom issues, the third category the church, church points to. If you have these freedom issues, what's the principal one? We would say it's uh, religious freedom, at least the church would. Why is, why is it religious freedom? Because it's the, the freedom to think and act according to your conscience. Now, it not only applies to religious people, it applies to political opinions, which is what our founding fathers thought of, that people should be free to think and speak about their political opinions and to act on them by voting for this person or that person. Uh, and so you go through the idea of freedom. It should be the freedom of parents to educate their children according to their own faith and their own customs and their own beliefs. You know, if you're a Mexican-American, you want to raise them by customs you're familiar with. If you're a, a Norwegian immigrant, you want to do that. If you're an African immigrant, you want to do that. If you're an Irish Catholic or a Polish Catholic, you want to keep those customs and raise them according to your faith. And so that's what would be important by freedom. Now today, it's all about do you have the right ideology? Do you have the right thought patterns? Are you doing the right actions that would support those, those beliefs of, of the civil culture, 
of the secular culture, of the academic world, of the media world. So is there any basket of issues there on the freedom issue that could be proportionate to supporting the, the liberty of opinion, especially religious opinion and action? And I'd say the answer there is no. So I think you look at all those categories and what the candidates are actually saying, and it will give you a pretty clear path of who to vote for. At least that's my opinion. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for Mast Appeal Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Colleen Kelly Mast takes your calls and offers two hours of free, friendly advice from a Catholic perspective. That's Mast Appeal Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Linda writes in, Hello, I'm 77-year-old cradle Catholic and enjoy Open Line very much. I've worked with Catholic bashing co-workers in the past who mocked infant baptism and many other aspects of Catholicism. My response was to ask if God didn't know what he was doing when he told the Jews to circumcise their infant sons as a mark of the covenant. Since baptism replaced circumcision as induction into the new covenant, it seems so obvious to me that any Christian would want to bring their newborn baby into the covenant. In a recent open line response, Collins' argument was more concerned with entire families being brought into the covenant together. My coworker had been Methodist and believed baptism should be an adult decision. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, that, uh, again, that Scripture is, is against that. The use of circumcision is sort of limited because only males were circumcised. It had to do with the Abrahamic covenant and the the uh, paternal authority that passed down through the through the tribes, through the fathers of the tribes, and so on. And so they were brought into the covenant. And uh, I had a, a, a Jewish uh, rabbi one tell me, well, also, you know that uh, women you knew were the children, you know, the children, girls. You know, they 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 were part of the family, so you really only had to worry about uh, the heads of the family, and that was part of it. But the issue of the whole family, I think, is very important because Israel was a religion of a natural family of the descendants of Abraham. Christianity is a religion, it's a supernatural family in which baptism is the door. So when you don't baptize infants, you leave your babies on the doorstep. So like the Jews, we consider our children to be part of the family of the redeemed. And we do that by baptizing them. And there they receive, they receive the, the mark of baptism, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are conformed to Christ and they receive all the blessings of justification and divine grace. So that's why I use the family issue. Circumcision works in a limited way, as I explained, but I think the example of the words even in Acts that he, the whole households were baptized shows that even more than the family, the, the, the slaves and others who were part of the household, uh, and maybe the, the grannies and the grandfathers who were being killed, kept, you know, kept in the family and cared for in their old age would have been among those numbers as well. But it shows the social dimension of the church. It's The church is a social entity as well as a supernatural entity, so it's a supernatural social entity. 
the family of God, the, ch- the family of the redeemed. And it's not a, you know, me and Jesus, one-on-one, that's all there is. Uh, that's not, not, that's individualistic, and there's nothing in the Bible to support that kind of individualism. Gary writes in, God is outside of time. He sees what was and what will be. Is the devil also outside of time, and does he see the future? The devil does not see the future. Uh, he was created in, uh, there are basically the, the, the three heavens, the, the heaven of God, which is God himself. There is the heaven of the angels, the, that uh, of eternity where the angels and the saints will be. Uh, and then there is the heavens, which we're familiar with by looking up at night. Uh, so those are the, the three heavens. So the angels were created not in time, but in something between time and eternity, uh, because they have the freedom to, uh, they, they had to make a choice, and they're not eternal. In heaven, we will be eternal, but we are immortal, uh, but we are not eternal. He can, however, see the past, and I encourage you, if you're ever being persecuted, to remind him of it. Um, <laughs> Loretta writes in, why do the priests wash their hands during Mass before blessing of the Eucharist? One stu- kind of answers itself a little bit there. <laughs> you know, it, it, it does. But a lot of the ceremonies in liturgies, both the, the Jewish liturgy and the Christian liturgy, have come from very normal practices that have then been giving a spiritual meaning. So the mixing of the water and the wine. They diluted their wine because it was the only safe liquid to drink in the Middle East in ancient times. No refrigeration or anything like that. So they drank wine, and then they diluted it, just because, you know, what happens if you don't drink and dilute it? You're going to get pretty tipsy. But a little water is poured in, which symbolizes human nature, mixing with the divine nature in Christ. So a lot of the ceremonies, which started out simply as a practical thing, you know, we want our priests to have washed their hands before they start handling uh, uh, the bread which will become the Lord. Which is the next thing they will touch. The next thing they will touch, the bread which will become the Lord, um, and then they will give it to us. So, clean hand. But the church has given to that a spiritual significance, and that's a good, very good thing. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday. Back at it again on Monday with Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless.